Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our executive pastor, Manny Colazzo. Well, hello, this is Pastor Manny, and I'm so glad to be here with you today uh, to share God's word with you. As usual, if you're watching this on whatever platform you're watching this, make sure to hit like, subscribe, share. It's a great way for you to uh, share the word of God and get God's word out into the world and with people that um, you might know who might need this message. And so, Would you join me in a word of prayer as I begin? Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for this opportunity to get into your word. We ask that you'd open up our minds and our hearts, our ears to hear, Lord God, and our wills to obey what it is that you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, do you remember the last time that you visited a church for the first time? Maybe you're tuning in right now to this uh, feed for the first time. And you're wondering, hmm, I wonder what criteria do I use to assess whether or not a church or even this broadcast of this church, Calvary, is my kind of church? Is it healthy? Perhaps you arrive like a, a doctor, a doctor looking for all the signs of health at a church. You strap your stethoscope on to listen for what makes this church's heart beat. Maybe you take your thermometer and you put it into its mouth to determine the spiritual temperature of the church. Is it hot? Is it cold? Is this church lukewarm? Perhaps you use your blood pressure cuff to gauge how sincere and how intense a church's love for God and people is. But even if you were to get all those readings on those markers right, in order to really get an accurate assessment of a church's health, you would need to have more time. You can't just do it on a Sunday morning or over one simple broadcast. You'd have to have the right conversations with the right people who'd be willing to give you the right information. But you know what? Even still, it's still possible to misdiagnose. So how does one correctly recognize the signs of a healthy church? Well, it's simple. You start with the one who originated the idea of church, Jesus. He alone is qualified to examine a church or the church and make an accurate diagnosis. And today, today I want to direct you to one of the few places in the Bible that Jesus does this. Turn your Bibles or open up your apps to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. As you turn there, I want you to know that in chapter 1, what Jesus does is that he establishes that his credentials of sovereign power and authority gives him the right to set the health standards for the church. And then in chapters 2 through 3, Jesus exercises that authority over the church. And just like a doctor would, he begins examining his patients. Jesus performs a thorough spiritual examination over seven churches. Now, as he does this, you might be surprised to find out that Jesus doesn't mention the things that impress us when we look at churches. 
He doesn't even mention the size of buildings or budgets or how awesome the band is. Instead, Jesus focuses on the spiritual health of the people who make up these churches. He commends, he encourages some of the practices that they've developed for their healthy habits. He corrects, he warns, he condemns them for some of the harmful practices that they've adopted. But check this out. To each one of these seven churches that he examines, he says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this is really a profound statement. Because what it does is that it applies what Jesus said to that specific group of people, to anyone who has, well, do something with me. Take your right hand right now, okay? What I want you to do is put it on the side of your head. Do you feel anything right there? Okay, okay, you feel that? That's called an ear. If you don't have one on that side, try the other side. See, it applies it to anybody who has ears. If you can hear what he is saying, he applies what he's saying to the churches to you. And he wants everyone, everyone to examine themselves by what he is saying to each of these churches. That way, we have a comprehensive evaluation of what a healthy church looks like and how healthy we really are. So, Calvary Monterey, let's open our ears to listen. Let's control our minds to learn, soften our hearts, and prepare our will to obey what Jesus said to the church that was in a city called Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Smyrna was a large and a beautiful city that had a lot to be proud of. For one, it was a center of learning and culture. Second, Smyrna was also a rich city. Because it was accessible both by land and sea, it was strategically located for commerce, which contributed to the city's great wealth. Third, Smyrna was a spiritual city. Smyrna was deeply committed to the worship of idols. However, by the time that this letter was received, idolatry was slowly being replaced by Roman emperor worship. One of the temples that marked this transition was the construction of the temple to the goddess of Rome. And that temple became a statement of Smyrna's allegiance to Rome and its emperors. Once a year, the citizens of Rome that lived in Smyrna were obligated to approach the altar to the godhead of Caesar, burn a pinch of incense, and say, Caesar is Lord. Then they would be given a certificate that verified that they had performed their religious obligation. Well, it was to the Christians living in this educated, cultured, and spiritual, and rich city that Jesus says, beginning in verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are out of synagogue of Satan. He tells them, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. 
I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. When Jesus examined Smyrna's symptoms, he could see that this church was an excruciating pain. Pain. Suffering. Trauma. Those things can happen suddenly to anyone, at any time, regardless of their faith. A devastating diagnosis. The unexpected loss of a loved one. An accident. In some parts of the world, suffering is a part of everyday life. A poor family living in a dangerous, violent part of town or regions of the world being torn apart by war. But sometimes, sometimes suffering comes at you because you're doing something right. Sometimes it can come at you in the form of an inconvenience, like perhaps you're being marginalized, marginalized for what you believe. Perhaps you're excluded for convictions that you embrace. Sometimes you have to endure the discomfort of missed opportunities because you won't compromise your values. And all of us are aware, some of us more than others, of how suffering can crush the human psyche. Suffering can cripple the heart and strangle the soul out of people. But not always. That doesn't always have to happen because of suffering. See, some people have learned how to suffer. And when hard times come their way, they still hurt, they still mourn and feel the pain, but somehow they're able to endure with a healthy resilience, tenacity, and strength. How do they do that? Well, I, I, I had to invent a word uh, in order to describe what I'm talking about. How do they do it? I call it sufferability. Sufferability. It's that ability to be better at suffering. This is the lesson that Jesus wants us to learn from what he says to this church in Smyrna. He wants us to learn, like they were, how to be better at suffering. Now, their suffering wasn't caused because of anything they were doing wrong. Folks, this was a healthy church. Jesus has no words of correction or condemnation for them. They were being hated and persecuted for doing all the right things and following Jesus. And so after diagnosing what was hurting them with pinpoint accuracy, Jesus does what any good doctor would do. He comforts his patient. But he does it in an uncommon, unconventional way. Instead of eliminating the source of their suffering, He encourages this healthy church so that they can continue to endure suffering well. Did you hear that? I think you heard it correctly. Jesus encourages them so that they can continue to suffer well. 
So one of the things we're learning here about the marks of a healthy church is that a healthy church is a church that endures suffering well. So even though our instincts and our culture's value system would tell us to avoid suffering, to run from discomfort and reject inconveniences at all costs, the wisdom of Jesus says, suffering is inescapable. Embrace it. Jesus wants us to learn how to be better at suffering. So what about you? Are you listening or watching the stream and maybe there's something right now personally afflicting you? Is there something or someone pressuring you to compromise your allegiance to God? Is the emotional and mental pain from being slandered so unbearable that you want to run? As Jesus diagnoses us today, the question he is searching us with personally and also corporately as a church is this. Have we suffered well? And if there's more suffering to come in our future, how can we, like Smyrna, continue to suffer well? Now, don't mistake in me. This is, he's not encouraging us to outmuscle this, to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and, and toughen up if you're going to suffer well. Oh, no. See, this is Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest of grief, who wants us, who he is the one that wants to comfort and encourage us to be better at suffering. How comforting it must have been to this church to hear Jesus say those two words in verse 9. I know. Here they were being persecuted financially, being persecuted by the Roman government, being persecuted by their city. And to hear and to read Jesus' words to them must have been so comforting. I know. I'm aware. I see what you're going through. I am paying attention. In verse 9, Jesus tells them that he knows they were suffering afflictions. In other words, this pressure was being applied from those they came in contact with outside the church. It sure wasn't easy being a worshiper of Jesus in Roman emperor worshiping city of Smyrna. Imagine the following scenario described by one of the commentators that I like to read. He said, once a year, the Roman citizen must burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed his religious duty. All that the Christians had to do was to burn that pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Receive their certificate and go away, and then they could worship as they pleased. But that is precisely what the Christians would not do. They would give no man the name Lord. That name they would keep for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. They would not even formally conform. And so what is a Christian supposed to do? When just like in Smyrna, 
the government legislates laws that go against God and his or her devotion to Jesus. You see, this is the tension that believers in Jesus have to live with. In one sense, on one hand, God commands us to submit to to him. And on the other hand, he also tells us to submit to government. What do we do when we're stuck between that rock and that hard place? God commands us to obey authority figures that don't share his values. And at the same time, we're commanded to disobey that which violates the clearly revealed will of God. It's when the ideologies of God and government collide that those of us who choose to be loyal to Jesus are often blacklisted, canceled, and subjected to persecution. Well, Calvary Smyrna, they chose to be loyal to Jesus. And as a result, they were being persecuted. Jesus speaks to them. He comforts them by telling them, I know. I'm aware. I see. I'm paying attention to your pain. But how does this help us to be better at suffering? Well, imagine a child in pain. He or she is crying because something hurts, and it hurts bad. Have you ever noticed what happens when someone pays attention? The moment someone steps in and begins to pay attention, the comforting begins. That is how it helps. Several years ago, my family and I were vacationing in Flagstaff, Arizona, And we took our nieces to explore an underground lava tube. And as we climbed deep into this one-mile-long, pitch-dark cave in the ground, one of the girls tripped, fell down, and scraped her hands and her knees. Well, the instant my wife said, let me see where it hurts. Oh, I see. You saw the comforting begin. Our niece blinked out a few more tears, caught her breath, (laughs) and began calming down. She knew that everything was going to be okay. Are you suffering? Is there an affliction causing you pain? Is there someone pressuring you to compromise your allegiance to God? Maybe a business partner, a coworker, or a spouse is pressuring you to sacrifice biblical, moral, or ethical principles. And as you stand up for and speak out for what is right instead of what feels right, you're paying for it. Well, how are you responding to that suffering? Well, hey, Jesus encourages you to be better at suffering because he knows you're suffering. He's not ignoring you, he's aware, he's paying attention to you, he's speaking to you right now saying, I see, I know. Let his words to you allow the comforting to begin. Your pain is important to him. He might not be taking the affliction away, but he is encouraging you to get better, to be better, at suffering. 
Perhaps this passage might be comforting to you during this time. It's something that Peter wrote to some folks that they were, that were suffering as well. He says to them, humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares for you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. In verse 9, Jesus tells them, that he knows they were also suffering, not just from afflictions, but also from poverty. I know your poverty. And I find this interesting, because even though the city of Smyrna was filthy rich, for some reason, the church in Smyrna wasn't able to tap into this wealth. I wonder if they were poor because of economic persecution. I mean, think about it. These were Christians who refused to conform. And so it's possible that they were fired from jobs, imprisoned and unable to work, or perhaps they were passed up for promotion or raises by their employers. Maybe they were given steep fines in the form of taxes for not performing their yearly duty to Caesar and being a Christian. But if they were poor, then what does Jesus mean when he says to them also in verse 9, yet you are rich? I see your poverty, yet you are rich? How, how can this church be poor and rich at the same time? Let me explain. Jesus is speaking spiritually. What he's saying is that prosperity is an ineffective measurement of spirituality. Just because someone is wealthy does not mean that they're spiritually healthy. As a matter of fact, if you skip ahead to Revelation 3, when Jesus speaks to the seventh church of Laodicea, their prosperity revealed that they were spiritually bankrupt. Even in the Gospels, Mark taught that for some people, wealth can be a hindrance to their spirituality. Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. However, when Jesus diagnoses the economic struggle of the church of Smyrna, he encourages them by telling them that he considers them to be spiritual millionaires. That's so consistent with what Jesus told his disciples when he was sitting on that, on that mountainside overlooking the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 5. He told them, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You know why? Because for them, to theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They get all of the riches of the kingdom of heaven. But the fact that Jesus says he knows about their financial trials also tells us that he's allowing it to happen. And not only that, in verse 10, he told them that he knows more suffering is headed their way. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will, in the future, put some of you in prison to test you and will, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Are you kidding me? He's letting them suffer and he's going to allow them to continue to suffer? Now, I know that in our culture, in which the highest ethic is compassion, and the highest value is given to ease, comfort, and pleasure. 
this is strange and, and difficult for us to understand that Jesus would allow suffering. It seems cruel and unfair that he wouldn't spare them. But remember the context of who Jesus, speak, Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to people who believe in God. He's speaking to the church who know God and have a relationship with God. And so even though you are a part and you live in this culture, don't forget who you are. Jesus, we remember what I told you, is a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. You are familiar with a God who knows pain and understands suffering. And as a Jesus follower, this doesn't make you better, but it should make you different. You should have a radically different view of suffering than the culture who doesn't know God and by all indications have rejected him. And notice how Jesus identifies himself to this suffering church. This God who knows suffering, identify, who understands pain, identifies himself in verse eight as the first and the last. This description of himself was selected by Jesus specifically for this church from Revelation chapter one. And it reminds them in the midst of their suffering that he is eternal. See, because Jesus is eternal, he sees suffering, even poverty, the way we experience winter, spring, summer, and fall. Our winter that began on Monday, December 1st, and will end Saturday, March 20th, our winter will transition to spring. But as the first and the last, this God who describes himself as eternal, sees suffering from the vantage point of eternity. He knows that it's not going to last. He knows that it's going to pass. And that's why we can be confident that all suffering we experience will also pass, just like the seasons do. It was also important that these poor Christians in Smyrna remembered that Jesus is he who died and came to life again. This description reminded the suffering church that they serve a risen Lord who was and continues to be victorious over death. So even if their suffering eventually led to their demise, death did not hold Jesus down and that cannot hold his people down either. That is the God that you know. That is the God that you worship. Remember who you are. How about you? Are you suffering? Are you struggling financially? Perhaps you're finding it difficult to pay the bills, keep the lights on, keep food on the table. Maybe you have a business that has gone south and the losses are piling up. Maybe you're one of the parents who's been laid off you're collecting unemployment, and now because of distance learning, you have to stay home. How are you responding to that suffering? From the words of Jesus, from the words of Jesus here on these pages, these words are rising up from the pages, and through them, Jesus is encouraging you to be better at suffering. 
because he is still in control while you're suffering. He is the eternal one, the first and the last. He is the one who died and came to life again. Jesus hasn't taken his hand off the steering wheel and carelessly allowed a wreck to happen in your life. He is the first and the last. He's the one who died and came to life again. I hope that's encouraging to you. I hope that's equipping you and filling you with the life that you need to be better at suffering. The third type of persecution that they were suffering was slander. I know the slander. This, of course, refers to the way the Christians were being spoken of, criticized, mocked, gossiped about, misrepresented, and misunderstood. This verbal hostility was coming from, Jesus says in verse 9, from those who say they are Jews and are not. Instead, they are described as a synagogue of Satan. Apparently, whatever it was that was being said was inspired and motivated by Satan himself, the one who opposes God, God's plan, and God's people. Is someone slandering you? Have you ever had someone lie about you or lie about something that you did or said? And their goal was simply to discredit you, ruin your reputation, your integrity, or credibility. That's exactly what the religious leaders did to Jesus and the Judaizers did to Paul. They tried to entrap him by asking insincere trick questions, misrepresenting his words, and making false accusations about his actions. Well, instead of removing the source of their suffering, Jesus, someone who is familiar with being slandered, encourages them so that they can continue to suffer well. See, folks, one of the marks of a healthy church, one of the marks of a healthy Christian is how they handle suffering. How does one bear this kind of suffering well? How does one become better at suffering? Well, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday morning, I meet with a personal fitness coach who literally tortures me for 60 minutes. Whether it's 10 more push-ups, squats, curls, or holding a plank for 10 more seconds, When he gives me a count, and he begins to count down, for some reason, I can complete the exercise. But there are those times where he has me perhaps hold a wall squat or or do a kettlebell swing for an undisclosed amount of time or an undisclosed number of repetitions. I find that when he doesn't count for me, it's easier to give up. Here's what I've noticed. The count prepares me to suffer a little longer. Whenever he counts and I hear him counting down, it prepares me to suffer a little longer. Well, that's similar to what Jesus does for us. See, folks, we don't have to fear the pain of suffering. Instead, we can suffer courageously because Jesus has prepared us to suffer. But Manny... What if I don't want to suffer? I know. I understand. (laughs) We prefer him to remove what's hurting. 
We want him to stop the hurtful words. But what if he decides for whatever reason not to remove the thorn in your side, that thing that's causing affliction and pain in your life? If he decides to do that, then I think it's wise for us to learn the three ways that he prepared this church to be better at suffering. First, Jesus prepared them to suffer well by telling them ahead of time that they were going to suffer. In verse 10, he tells them, you are about to suffer. He not only did told the church in Smyrna that, but he also warned his 12 disciples and all of his future followers. Remember what he said in John 15? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He even told Timothy through Paul, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, Jesus doesn't want us to be caught by surprise when suffering and persecution happens. He wants us to be ready for it so that when it happens, we can endure it and remain loyal. Second, Jesus prepared them to suffer well by telling them that the devil was behind their persecution in verse 10. The Bible teaches that the devil can disrupt, that he can cause dissension, that he can inflict pain, disease, and bodily harm. He can influence and tempt us to do wrong. The Bible calls him the father of lies and a deceiver. The devil is behind many of our struggles and conflicts. And the Bible describes our battle with him as a spiritual battle in which we need the armor of God and the protection of God himself. And even though the devil can't be everywhere at the same time, he sure does seem to be because he commands a vast army of demon, evil spirits who do his bidding. And even though all of this is true, he is not all powerful. But Jesus is. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And third, Jesus prepares them to suffer well by telling them that suffering will not last long. You will suffer persecution for 10 days, he says. Now, there's much discussion as to what these 10 days mean. And I think it simply means that the persecution of the church of Smyrna will be a short time of 10 days. It doesn't mean that all persecution will be for a short period of time. But that however long it lasts, it will not last forever. And that God would not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. Because like when I'm in pain from doing a bench press, there's a count. And the count prepares me to suffer just a little longer. Ten days. One, two, three. It's almost over. Four, five, six, four more. Five, six. And then I'm done. Are you suffering? Are words being weaponized to harm you? Are you being criticized and mocked or gossiped about? Have your actions been purposely misrepresented and your words intentionally twisted to discredit you? Well, how are you responding to the suffering? Jesus 
through his message, through his letter, through his words to the church of Smyrna, is encouraging you to be better at suffering because he has prepared you to suffer. He prepares you by letting you know ahead of time, making you aware that suffering can be demonically motivated and that it is temporary. Finally, we can suffer well because like the church of Smyrna, we have the certain, the sure hope that Jesus will reward us. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus promises two rewards to those who are faithful to suffer well. He said, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The first reward is this crown of life. A crown symbolizes victory. Jesus is promising victory to this poor, suffering church who appears to be buckling under the pressure, even on the verge of being defeated. And also in verse 11, he says, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. The second reward is the promise to be spared from the second death. According to Revelation 20 and 21, this second death refers to the lake of fire, which speaks to the final and ultimate separation of the unbeliever from God in hell. You might be experiencing extreme pain and suffering. But like the church of Smyrna, we don't have to fear suffering or death as a result of our suffering. Why? Because of the reward. Our future to live forever with the Lord is promised and maintaining the hope of this reward can energize and motivate us to endure the trials in this life. Just like Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 18, he said, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. I also think of Paul's invitation to his protege, Timothy, to endure suffering with him. He told him in the second letter he wrote to them, to him, he gives him three examples of people who willingly endure suffering. A soldier an athlete, and a farmer. We can learn about suffering from those three kinds of people. Each of them willingly submit themselves to their painful work, the painful work of their trade, and what motivates them to stay in it and to keep doing it? It's the reward. Are you suffering? Are you a suffering employee who's about to lose their job because you won't lie, cheat, or manipulate? Are you that student refusing to get high or get involved in illicit sex and you're suffering rejection and ridicule from your friends? Maybe you're that wife or husband, a son or a daughter who's remaining faithful to Jesus while living with others who are hostile towards your faith. How are you responding to that suffering? My prayer is that what Jesus' word, what Jesus is saying to the church of Smyrna, this suffering church, encourages you to be better at suffering. Why? Because he will, number four, will reward you for suffering. Smyrna. 
holds a special message for every believer who has suffered, is suffering, and will suffer for the cause of Christ and the gospel. It's a good message for us to be reminded of often because what it does is that it emphasizes what Jesus knows about your suffering. This letter of Jesus to the church of Smyrna reveals who Jesus is to those of you who are suffering. It reminds you that he is eternal, that he's the resurrected one who is commanding you, do not be afraid, be faithful as you suffer. It's helpful for us to hold on to the promises of this letter because it reminds you of those promises that he has for you as you suffer. Folks, you can be better at suffering. And through this letter, Jesus encourages you to be better at suffering because he knows you are suffering. He is still in control while you are suffering. He has prepared you to suffer, and he will reward you for your suffering. Amen? Will you pray with me? And so, Lord, I pray that the promises in this letter would be true for us. Lord, we don't like the pain. We don't like the suffering, and I don't think that is what you're asking for us here. But you are laying out for us the things that we need to be better at suffering. And those that are the indicators, Lord, of a healthy church, of a healthy Christian. How we respond to these times of trial and tribulation. Whether they are because we are being persecuted because of our faith, our life is being inconvenienced, and and our comforts, Lord God, are being pulled out from under us. Well, sometimes, Lord, it's even more direct and harsher. Our life might be threatened, our reputation torn down, our character distorted, because we won't compromise. And so, Father, I pray your mercy. I pray your grace upon those who have suffered, those who are in the midst of suffering, those of us, Lord, who will suffer. Thank you for these words. Thank you for this example of Smyrna. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.